Exodus chapter 1 in the Red Church Bibles. This is on page 58. You'd think it's quite easy to find, but sometimes the books nearest the end and the beginning of the Bible are the hardest ones to find. Um, Exodus chapter 1, page 58 of the Red Church Bibles. And we'll read from verse 1 to chapter 2, verse 10. Let's hear God's word together. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now, Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar, and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Puah, When you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They're vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months, but when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. 
When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. That's God's word. Nathan's going to come and preach to us now. Do keep that part of the Bible open. It'll be helpful as we look at it together. Well, some stories are foundational. They are more than just true or interesting. They're stories that ground us. They tell us who we are. So the CEO of a company tells the story over and over of how they started off in his garage and how they grew to become the world's biggest tech giant. That story gives them an identity. It tells them we're scrappy underdogs. Forget the fact that we're the richest people in the world. No, we're underdogs, we're innovators, and we're making this thing happen, and we still can again. Or a grandfather who tells the story of how they moved to this country to start a new life for themselves, how they started with nothing, but they worked hard and stuck together And now look at them, this happy, successful family. They tell that story on purpose. It gives them an identity. The nation looks back on the war and retells that story, how we rose to the challenge and won our freedoms. Those kinds of stories are foundational. They remind us why we're here and what's possible. When we feel lost, those stories help to reorient us again. But one of the most foundational stories in the Bible is the Exodus. This book that we're starting looking at this evening explains so much. It explains how one man's family became a people, how that people were rescued, what rescue even means, and how that nation came to have the Lord as their God. Even within the story at various points, while the events were happening, The people were told how important it is to keep telling this story. So when your children later down the line ask you, how were we rescued from slavery? Tell them the story again. Tell them the story again. This book of Exodus sets up so much of the rest of the Bible. We're introduced to the idea of redemption, how central that is, a price being paid to rescue us. We get the Ten Commandments where God first instructs his people how he wants them to live. We hear about the tabernacle, a sort of precursor to the temple, which really is about how does God want to be worshipped? How can sinful people come to a holy God? Exodus introduces us to prophecy for the first time. It introduces us to God's name for the first time. Yahweh, I am who I am. There's so many ways in which this story of the Exodus gives us a foundation But we're not reading this just as the Jewish people would have done to find our national identity. Where do we come from as a nation? We're reading this as New Testament Christians. Because all those themes, all those ideas that we've just been thinking about, find their fulfillment in Jesus. The stories we're going to read here over the next little while shed light on our story of being rescued by him. So I'm going to pray for us now that all the things that we learn here would be foundational for us, would help us as we want to know God and enjoy our rescue through Jesus. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this book of Exodus. And so we ask that you would please help us now as we begin to look at it. Help us to learn more of you. Help us to see more of what it means to be rescued through Jesus. 
and how to live as your rescued people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the God we're introduced to in this book of Exodus is a promise-keeping God. And through these first couple of chapters, we see loads of stuff relating to his promises. In particular, as we start chapter 1, we see how God keeps his promise to grow his people. God keeps his promise to grow his people. So the story of the Exodus doesn't start in Exodus. It starts with promises that were made years and years and years before. So we see that as we start this bit, chapter 1, verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob. That's deliberately picking up where the book of Genesis left off, just the page before. In Genesis, out of all the people in the world, God chose one man named Abraham, and he made amazing promises to him. God promised Abraham people land and blessing. So the people, that, that his family, which he didn't have at that time, but his family would become a huge group, more than the stars in the sky, more than the sand on the beach. He promised him a people. He promised him a land that that people would live in a wonderful land of their own. And he promised them blessing, that those people in that land would experience God's goodness as they lived under his rule, and that they would be a blessing to the rest of the world as well. People, land, and blessing. Despite being a very elderly man, Abraham did eventually have a son, Isaac. Isaac had a son, Jacob, known as Israel. And Israel had 12 sons, and that's who we're introduced to here. Those are the names, names of the sons of Israel. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, and Joseph. Those 12 sons of that man called Israel. Joseph was sold by the other 11 as a slave, and he ended up in Egypt. And the second half, really, of the book of Genesis talks about how Joseph rises to power in Egypt, how he rescues Egypt from a terrible famine, and how his father Israel and all his brothers were brought to Egypt to be taken care of. So Genesis finishes with this wonderful picture of God's people again gathered together. They're not in their land, they're in Egypt, but they're gathered together. This one man who'd grown to a family of 12. But with all their children, verse 5 tells us, the descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. So we see this promise to grow God's people is coming true already. One man grows to be 12, which grows to be 70, and that's where Genesis ends. So we, we kind of are left going, okay, well, what's next? What's the story next? What's going to happen? And what happens is that God keeps his promises. God has kept his promise to grow his people. Let's read verse 6 and 7. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. God has really kept his promise, hasn't he? That is serious growth. Exceedingly fruitful, multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, became so numerous. We kind of, okay, we get the point. We get the idea. There's a lot of them. They've grown. There are now tons of them. And that's said those four times to try and get us to see this is miraculous. This is more growth than you would expect in that amount of time. 
They are filling the land. So what started off in verse 1 as the sons of a man called Israel is by the time we get to verse 7, the Israelites. They're now a group of people. They're now a people group. They get a name like that. They become an ite. And if you look ahead to chapter 2, verse 1, they're not the only ites. We get the first mention that there are tribes within this nation. So the bloke we mentioned, we read about a minute ago called Levi, he now has enough descendants to talk about the tribe of Levi, and they're the Levites. So that is some serious growth, isn't it? That is a large family, when each child has now become an enormous tribe. And by the time we get to chapter 12 of this book, we're given a number. We're told how many there actually are. And we're told that is 600,000 men plus women and children. So there's now over a million of them. God has really kept his promise, hasn't he? It looks so unlikely when you say to an elderly man who has no children, your family are going to be bigger than the stars in the sky. And you think, shut up. No way. And there they go, from 1 to 12 to 70 to a million in not that long a space of time. God kept his promise abundantly through years, through centuries. God kept his promise. And that should really encourage us, shouldn't it? That when God makes promises to us, he keeps them. When he promises to grow his people, to build his church, to spread his kingdom, he will. He absolutely will. Life will not always be easy, but God will keep his promises. So as chapter 1 begins, we've got this growing people as promised. But the other bits of the promises seem a little bit shaky, don't they? They're not in their own land. You promised blessing, a land, and a people. Well, we've got the people, but they're not in their own land. And are they being blessed in other ways? Well, with the birth rate, yes, but the next part of the story shows that there are some ways in which they seem to be very, very far from being blessed. In this next part from verse 8, Pharaoh challenges God's promise. Pharaoh challenges God's promise to bless his people. So in verse 8, Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. So we've got Joseph who saved the nation. Everybody was so grateful to him. How quickly people forget. How soon history goes out the window. The next Pharaoh either didn't know what Joseph had done, more likely didn't care what Joseph had done. The Israelites had been very, very helpful in the past, but now he sees, no, they're just a problem. There are just too many of them. And this has happened many times since. This kind of populist leader rises up and stirs up fear of this minority, this immigrant group. Verse 9, look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they'll become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they'll join our enemies and fight against us and leave the country. It is funny, isn't it? You can't quite pick why he doesn't like them because there's so many of them. We need to deal with it or else they're going to leave. Hang on, I thought, you wanted to, do you not want them to leave? Either way, he just does not like them. He does not want them there. Instead of seeing God's goodness in growing his people, he sees a threat. These people, they're not really part of us. 
They may have lived here for ages, but they're still foreigners. So if other foreigners attack us, well, they'll turn on us in a heartbeat. You can't trust them. We need to work out how to keep them in their place. And so in verse 11, Pharaoh makes them slaves. They are rounded up like cattle and put to work. See that in verse 11? They put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. So God's people are no longer free. They are no longer paid for the work that they do. They are made to work for nothing on pain of death or violence. Can you imagine it? Just think of the pyramids, the great Egyptian cities, how they were built in the baking desert sun under a whip. Verse 14, they made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. It was a bitter, bitter experience. Slavery is a horrible evil. But we're meant to look at this story and look at their bitter experience and recognize ourselves. As the story of the Exodus comes on to the rest of the Bible, slavery is how our situation is described over and over again. So for for one example, Jesus said in John 8, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. So when we sin, we like to think we're in charge. That's kind of why we're sinning, isn't it? This is about me being in charge. I'm the boss. I do whatever I want. But sin is in charge. Sin is now our master. If you don't believe me, try not to sin for a week. Just try not to do it, or just a couple of days, or an afternoon. You can't do it. Left to ourselves, we are slaves. We are slaves to sin. It's something we cannot stop doing, and it's something that makes life bitter. Spiritually speaking, this is our situation, unless God does something about it. Bound, captive, oppressed by sin. We're as enslaved to sin as the Israelites were by Pharaoh. And like them, we need somebody to set us free, somebody to rescue us, somebody to bring us out into a place of blessing. Because right now, in that situation, the Israelites were not being blessed because Pharaoh is a horrible master over them. He keeps on challenging God's promises. We've got the forced labor, but then it gets worse in verse 15. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, when you're helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. Isn't that horrible? Newborn babies, midwives, who are supposed to be there to care for them, to bring them into the world, kill them if they're boys. The idea being that in a few years, there'll be no more Israelite men, no more potential soldiers, no more potential husbands. So the Israelite women, they're either going to have to be single and childless or intermarry with Egyptians. Either way, the Israelites are gone. It is a horrible plan, this kind of abortion, this kind of population control. It's genocide. And it's a challenge to God's promise to bless his people. Pharaoh brings all kinds of challenges, but it's really interesting to see how every time he challenges God, it doesn't work. 
It doesn't work. So take the slavery. Pharaoh's aim for the hard labor, reduce the population. We'll get them so weary and tired out, they give up and they'll die and they'll do all sorts of things. What's the result? Verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. See, in opposing God, in taking on his people, Pharaoh thinks he's being really shrewd. He thinks he's being really wise and clever. But instead of being stamped out, when you apply pressure to God's people, they spread out all the more. See, God's promises are being challenged, but they hold true. And it's the same with the midwife plan. They're told to kill the baby boys. But in verse 17, the midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. It's interesting, some, there's some debate about whether these women were uh, Israelites themselves. Most people seem to think that they weren't. Actually, you've got these Egyptians who are being told, right, here's, here's just between me and you. When you get called out into the delivery room, deal with the babies. And they go, no, because we fear God. What they've been told to do was evil. And so they refused to do it. They come up with this story, which may well have been true, I don't know. They're the Hebrew women, they're just so strong. They're just so prolific, popping out babies, left, right and centre. By the time we arrive, the kid's already born. I can't subtly murder it while it's already being passed around the grandparents, can I? Sorry. See, Pharaoh's challenges don't work. God's promises live on. Part of God's promise to bless his people was that he would bless those who bless his people and curse those who curse his people. So look what happens when these midwives do the right thing by God's people. Verse 20. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. See, they bless God's people, and so God blesses them. And so when Pharaoh tries to curse God's people, what should we expect to see? We should expect to see him be cursed. We should expect to see Pharaoh lose spectacularly. And in a couple of chapters' time, that is exactly what we are going to see. But even in this first chapter, when Pharaoh really seems to have the upper hand, there's subtle ways that the story undermines him. The women who won't do as they're told, we're given their names, Shifra and Pua, but we never get told what the Pharaoh's called. They're so obsessed with their own legacy, they're going to build this massive pyramid so they will never be forgotten. The Bible doesn't seem to think it's worth writing their name down. The midwives, however, these two nobodies, well, they feared God. So let's remember them. Let's honor them. Let's imitate them. When we are told to do something we know is wrong, when we might be told to do that by a very frightening person, no, we fear God more and we do the right thing. When we are oppressed, fear of God is what we need. But Pharaoh is furious about this disobedience. And so his challenge to God's promises, it gets even stronger. Verse 22, then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. So now it's not just the midwives. Everybody is commanded to join his hit squad. So you're walking down the street, you see a baby in a pram, 
chuck it to the crocodiles. That's the law. You must do it. It's awful. Nurse, you see your next door neighbour painting the nursery blue? You need to go in, grab the baby and drown it. These are horrific, horrific laws. This is ethnic cleansing. This is a mini holocaust. This is a genocidal maniac. Pharaoh must be stopped. When he eventually gets what's coming to him and the other pharaohs who are just like him, we should celebrate. This is a terrible, terrible regime. The fear that people must have felt when they heard that news, especially anybody pregnant, it is horrendous. God's people enslaved, in danger of being destroyed, wiped out. And just like us in our slavery against sin, they cannot save themselves. It's a really desperate situation by the time we get to the end of chapter 1. But they have a great God. They have a God who has made promises, promises that he will bless them, a God who keeps his promises. And so from chapter 2 onwards, we see the tide begin to turn. We see God starting to lay the groundwork for their coming salvation. We see how God remembers his promise to rescue his people. He remembers those promises. He will not let them be wiped out. He is going to rescue them out of this terrible situation. And he's going to do it by rescuing a rescuer. By saving somebody who will later save everybody else. The first chapter in the first Harry Potter book uh, introduces us to an evil dark lord, Voldemort. A terrible tyrant. And he attacks a young baby, and yet somehow the child survives and will grow up to overthrow him. And the name of that first chapter is The Boy Who Lived. The Boy Who Lived is a title that follows Harry Potter around for the rest of his life. Oh, it's Harry Potter, The Boy Who Lived. And it would be a really good name for Moses as well. He is the boy who lived, the one who one day, who survived this attack as a child and would one day lead his people to victory. So we've got this terrible situation on the national scale. The camera zooms in on this one family. Chapter 2, verse 1, this man and woman from the tribe of Levi, which is significant. That's the tribe that's going to become the priests, the go-betweens between God and the people. Into that tribe, a baby's born, a son which means he's born with a target on his back. Verse 2 says of his mother that when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. Now, everybody thinks their baby is cute. This is more than that. It's not saying, oh, I was going to murder him, but he's so adorable. It's not, it's not saying that. She, it's saying, when it's saying he's a fine child, it's saying there is something special about him. There's something going on here. And at risk to herself and her family, she hides him. She doesn't let anybody know or else he'd be killed. Now, babies are really difficult to hide, I would imagine. If you've ever tried to keep a baby quiet during a church service or, or any time, really, you know how impossible it is. Babies scream, babies cry. They create a lot of fuss. Somehow, she keeps the secret for the first few months. That is miraculous already. But then it reaches that point where you're saying, I can't keep this secret any longer. What do you do in that situation? 
Well, her plan is really ingenious. Pharaoh says, put the babies in the river. Well, he never said they couldn't be in a boat. And so verse 3, when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. And nowadays we call these sort of baskets that you put a baby in a Moses basket. We had one for our children. It's a a lovely thing, kind of soft and cuddly. That first one would have been a, a box, a storage box or a basket that had stuff in it, tipped out, emptied out, waterproofed as best they could, and then dropped in the river. If challenged, she could say, well, technically I did what you asked. But really, it's a desperate thing, isn't it? Anything she could do to try and save this baby's life. It must have been awful. Can you imagine putting your three-month-old on this makeshift raft, just hoping the water doesn't get in, and then leaving it on the edge, thinking, I, I, I will probably never hold this child again. As the family stand back and they just wait helplessly, leaving the situation with God to say, I just, I cannot see a way through this. I don't know what's going to happen. They just stand back and watch as God comes through for them in just the most remarkable way. It just so happened that Pharaoh's daughter went for a swim that day on that particular stretch of water. And it just so happened that she saw something weird over in the rushes on the side of the thing and says, could you fish that, whatever that is, fish that out? And the servant goes over and goes, oh, it's just an old basket, Your Majesty. Don't worry yourself. Oh, hang on a minute. The basket's crying. I think there's a baby in there. It must be one of those Hebrew babies. Don't worry yourself, Your Majesty. I will make sure it's drowned properly. Don't worry. And she says, no, 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 no. Don't do that. Don't do that. And she looks at the baby and she feels sorry for the poor little thing. We can't kill it now. It's very hard to do that once you've given it a cuddle. What could she do? Well, just then, the baby's sister jumps out of the hiding place. Goes, Have you just found a baby? Yes. Do you need someone to look after it? I can find you someone to look after it, no problem. Yeah, that would be great. Yes, please. So she runs off in verse 8. The girl went and got the baby's mother. Isn't that fantastic? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, you know, Do me a real favor, would you? Take this baby and nurse him for me. Hmm, let me think about it. Oh, I'll pay you. Uh, Yes, please. Isn't that absolutely fantastic? Pharaoh has ordered this baby to be killed and his family ends up paying the baby's mother to bring it up. What a rescue. What an amazing set of events that only God could orchestrate to bring Moses into that family that will give him some kind of prestige when later he has to go back into the palace to speak to Pharaoh again. It's an incredible incredible thing and we ought to take huge comfort from it that you cannot outwit God that when powerful people set themselves against God and his promises they will not win they will not because God remembers his promises to rescue his people that rescue of that one baby is just a tiny picture of the bigger rescue that God will bring about. It's a rescue that points back to rescues of the past. So uh, you might have seen the footnote there in, your, in verse 3, that the word for basket could be translated ark. It's the exact same word. 
The basket is like the boat that Noah was told by God to build, covered in tar and pitch, to rescue him from the flood. And once again, God is doing it again, rescuing his people through troubled waters. So it points backwards and it points forwards. The princess calls the baby Moses, which means to be drawn out. It's a bit like saying, let's call him Drew, because I drew him out of the water. Just as in the same way, all of Israel is going to be drawn out of Egypt. They're going to be brought out through the waters of the Red Sea to safety. And this little rescue of the baby points us forwards to Jesus as well. When he was a baby, an evil king, Herod, wanted him dead and so ordered all the baby boys to be killed. But God kept him safe as well, ironically, by sending him to Egypt. (laughs) He allowed him to grow up so that he could rescue his people. Later in life, Jesus would be sentenced to death, a bit like Moses being put into the Nile, only to be drawn out of death again in his resurrection. In Jesus, we too are pulled out of death and adopted into the royal family. So all these patterns that come up over and over again in the story, they're not accidental. God is deliberately telling these stories that repeat with these patterns. So we will notice that repeated pattern of him keeping his promises, that he is faithful to every one of his promises. We mustn't doubt him. He absolutely keeps his promises to us. To make the point further, the rest of chapter 2, which we didn't have time to read, is a series of mini-rescues. So Moses is adopted by the princess. When he grows up, he decided to leave the comfort of the palace and to identify with his suffering people. And that would have been a massive thing, wouldn't it? To go, shall I stay in the palace or shall I join them out there who are slaves? But he goes out there and in verse 11, it says that he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew slave. And so Moses comes to the rescue. He attacks the slave driver and sets the Israelite free. In this, again, mini picture of what he would do for all of them in the future. Because God is a rescuing God. The people didn't like it. They rejected Moses as their rescuer. They told people that he'd killed this Egyptian. And so Moses has to go on the run. But even there, he's a rescuer. What does he do when he finds himself in the middle of nowhere? Verse 16 and 17, if you look, he comes across this group of seven sisters who are attacked by a group of shepherds. Moses comes to the rescue. He gets rid of these nasty shepherds and then he looks after these women and he looks after their sheep, just as he's eventually going to shepherd Israel. Over and over again, we see rescue after rescue, God rescuing Moses so that he can go and rescue other people. And it is all because God remembers his promises. Let's just have a look at the last couple of verses in chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. And these verses at the end explain the whole thing so far. It says, During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. This is why we've been thinking so much 
this evening about God's promises, because that's what it all hinges on. God rescues Moses because of his promises. God will rescue the rest of his people because of his promises, those promises of rescue. God had made a covenant, a binding contract, and we're told here that he remembered it. That doesn't mean he'd forgotten about it. He just goes, oh my goodness, no wonder they're slaves, I just totally forgot. No, it doesn't mean that. To remember it is to act on it, is to say, I've made a promise, and today is the day that promise comes good. Just listen what God actually promised to Abraham back in Genesis 15, centuries before all of this. It says, Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and ill-treated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. So all of this is exactly what God had said would happen. The slavery, the misery, and the rescue. They will come out. He will draw them out. They will exodus, depart, leave. Not as slaves, but as God's free people. Earlier on, I quoted Jesus talking about our slavery to sin. Let me finish that quote from John chapter 8. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. See, the slavery of our sin is not final. Jesus is the son who sets us free. Jesus is the boy who lived to rescue God's people. Jesus has not left us in our slavery or our bitterness or our misery. When we groan, when we cry out to him, we can take enormous comfort from verses 24 and 25 of chapter 2. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant. God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. He heard, he remembered, he saw He cared. He cared enough to send a rescuer, even better than Moses. And when we cry out to him, he hears us. When we suffer, he sees it. He cares. He remembers his promises. Like Moses, Jesus chose to leave his royal place and identify with us. Like Moses, Jesus fights our captors and sets us truly free. So when we are groaning, we mustn't for a minute think God has forgotten. Sin might challenge God's promises. Other people, bad situations might challenge God's promises. But God remembers and keeps everyone. So we cry out to him and we just wait for him to set us free. Let me pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for this foundational story, for what this teaches us about who you are and about who we are as your people. We thank you for your promises that whatever challenges they face, whatever challenges we face, you remember and keep 
every promise. In our sin, in our bitterness, we cry out to you to set us free. And we thank you for sending Jesus to be our rescuer. Make us more and more confident in you and in your promises. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.